0: Well, good morning, New Hope. Recently, one of the last fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in Cave cave 4 at Qumran was translated, and it added a heretofore unknown passage that uh, was a part, apparently, of originally chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. In the dialogue with the disciples concerning the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, Jesus asked his disciples as he held the fish aloft, this is a flounder. Do you know what the difference is between a flounder and a lawyer? And after a long pause, Jesus said, one's a slimy, stinky, scum-sucking bottom feeder, and the other is a fish. (laughs) Even then, lawyers were seen as a pox on society, and nowhere has it been more real than in modern Western society, and especially here in America. In 1975, when I entered law school, There were 450,000 lawyers in the United States, and law schools were graduating 34,000 more new lawyers every year. At about that time, Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was quoted as saying, we may well be on our way to a society overrun by hordes of lawyers hungry as locusts, and brigades of judges in numbers never before contemplated. By 2010, 35 years later, the number of lawyers in the United States had tripled to 1,220,000, and law schools were still pumping out 44,000 new grads a year. In that same period of time when the number of lawyers tripled, the population of the United States had only increased by 40%. Economists estimate that the cost of liability in the U.S. propelled by litigation and the threats of litigation represents somewhere between 1.6 and 2.3 Of our gross national uh, gross domestic product, nearly triple the rate in the Eurozone. Although I practiced law for six years in the late 70s and early 80s, I was not exactly what you would call a hotshot litigator. In fact, the first case that I ever handled arose two days after I had been sworn in to the bar. Now, just to set the context, my undergraduate degree was in accounting, and while I was in law school, I taught tax accounting at what was then called Towson State. So in going to law school and becoming a lawyer, I thought I'd be a corporate lawyer, a tax lawyer, etc., and really had no intentions of ever being involved in criminal law. But on a Sunday afternoon, two days after being sworn in, I got a call from one of the partners in the firm I worked with, and he said that a friend of one of the firm's clients had a warrant out for his arrest for attempted murder in connection with a shooting that had happened in an alley off North Avenue Uh, In Baltimore City. And so being the low man on the totem pole, I was dispatched to go meet this man and to take him in and turn him in uh, and to handle his case, which was a case for attempted murder. Now, I can tell you, I was way in over my head not something I ever contemplated doing through law school. So when I met my new client, whose name was Johnny, he let me know that the shooting had occurred in an alley near his house, that the victim was a resident at a nearby halfway house, and that he was a wall from that facility. He swore to me that he had nothing to do with it, and in fact, he had an ironclad alibi at the time that the shooting took place he actually was in a carryout shop picking up breakfast for his family. He had a receipt and the people at the carryout shop would verify that he had been there. Now Johnny was a former professional boxer and although he had a few arrests earlier in his life he had been on the straight and narrow for 20 years. He had spent the last 18 years in a stable job working for the city of Baltimore in the Department of Recreation, and he supported his common-law wife and their eight children in a small house in Baltimore City. Now, I knew from law school that bail is based on the likelihood that the accused will, in fact, show up for their trial. And given that Johnny had a steady job and close family ties in the community, these were the kinds of indications that the court looks at to determine what bail should be. Now, upon his arrest, his bail was set at $50,000, 1978 we're talking here, and there was no way he or his family could meet the bail. It was now late, November and Johnny wanted to be home with his family for the holidays and so I petitioned for a bail review hearing confident that with his clean record his steady job and his close family ties I could get his bail lowered to the point where his family could afford it or maybe even get him released on his own recognizance now that's a legal term that basically means released without bail. The bail review hearing was scheduled fairly quickly the week after we turned him in. And when we appeared for the hearing, the prosecution presents a report on why they think bail should be a certain amount. And then the defendant has a chance to explain why the bail should be lowered or even eliminated. Well, in this case, the prosecutor read from a report from the probation department that said that the victim in the shooting was in Johns Hopkins Hospital and was in very grave condition, at which point the judge said, so this could turn into a first-degree murder charge, at which point I realized that I was even further in over my head because I had never thought about checking in advance about what was going on with the victim of the shooting. All I had was my ironclad, steady job, clean record, close family ties. The judge decided that rather than decreasing bail, he would increase it to $500,000. So in my first case as an attorney, I had bail increased on an innocent client at a hearing I had requested to get his bail reduced. Now, the rest of the story is, I scrambled after that hearing, and over the next week, I found out that, in fact, the probation officer in the case had mixed up his files, and there had been two shootings that Saturday in the same police district, and the victim in the crime Johnny was charged with had already been released from the hospital and was uh, home, and there were no further complications, whereas in the other shooting, the victim was still uh, in Johns Hopkins and in grave condition. The probation officer Apologized profusely to me, but I was left with my only recourse being to straighten out the facts when there would be what's called a preliminary hearing. And a preliminary hearing is set up for the state to present their reasons or their uh, preliminary facts that they're relying on, and the judge determines whether the facts are sufficient to go forward with the criminal proceeding. But by now it was early December and the uh, courts had a crowded docket with lots of off days coming up and I could not get the preliminary hearing scheduled until early in January. And so for six weeks, an innocent, my innocent client was missing Christmas with his family, sitting in jail, and he was very concerned about losing his job. So I spent every week visiting him in uh, the central lockup in Baltimore City right off of uh, 83, and trying to explain to him why I couldn't get him out even though he was innocent. Now, at the time... Uh, There was a TV show actually in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up called Perry Mason. I don't know if any of you remember Perry Mason, but Perry Mason was a defense attorney and he always represented innocent clients who through some mix-up or whatever were accused of very heinous crimes. And in the last five minutes of the show, Perry Mason would always unravel the mystery whilst the trial was going on with the witness on the stand who would wind up confessing to the crime, and Perry Mason would get his attorney, his uh, clients off. Well, I knew enough to know that that was pure TV. That never happens in the courtroom. And uh, as you can imagine, now that cameras are allowed in the courtroom, You just don't see that happening. Criminal cases are very boring, very tedious, very long. But at Johnny's preliminary hearing in early January, I noticed that the victim who had identified Johnny and was the reason he was uh, the accused, I noticed that his eyes were bloodshot in this early morning of the hearing. So when I got him on the stand... I asked him if he had a drinking problem. And he hung his head and he responded to me, Yes, Your Honor. Which is interesting because I wasn't the judge, but he was calling me Your Honor. <laughs> so then I said, I bet you've been drinking this morning, haven't you? And he said, Yes, Your Honor, I have. And I said, You probably were drinking on the morning when you were shot? And he said, yes, Your Honor, I was. Getting braver, I said, in fact, can you say that someone in this courtroom today is the person who shot you? And he said, no, Your Honor, I can't. At which point I turned to the judge and said, Your Honor, he cut me off, banged the gavel and said, case dismissed. So, In the end, I was a hero to Johnny and his family, but I have forever lived with the guilt that I got bail increased on my innocent client at a bail reduction hearing. My other infamous faux pas litigation-wise was I actually lost an uncontested divorce. Now, that's a story for another day. But after that, the guys in the law firm decided, documents would be good for you to do. We'll keep you out of court. But let's get back to today's text. It would appear that the same condition that uh, exists here in the modern Western world, and particularly in the United States, had infiltrated the church in Corinth as well. Let's read the passage. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then Matters pertaining to this life. So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. There are two big ideas that I think we can take from this passage. But first, I just want to set the context all the way back in Genesis 12, when Abraham was called, God told him that he was going to bless him in order to be a blessing. God established the nation of Israel as a people to bless because he wanted the life that they lived to be a beacon to the world about the Uh, saving ability of our Lord and Savior and Father. And the church is now the community that God is blessing in order to have the world blessed and to redeem his creation and his people from the brokenness and separation of sin. Like the Jewish community, God's plan is to lead us into a vibrant community life that will draw others to his saving grace. But the church at Corinth was not a community that was representing him well. We've already heard about the problems with divisions within that church that were being exhibited in nasty conflicts over who was a follower of what leader in the church. Paul's already introduced his concern about sexual immorality among them, which Jason will pick up on beginning next week. But here he's addressing the flood of legal conflicts that the community is taking outside of the body for resolution. Now, the sign of a healthy, thriving community following Christ is oneness. In fact, Jesus made it a cornerstone of his great priestly prayer in John 17 when he prayed over the disciples and asked that they would be one so that the world would be drawn to the Father. In 1720 and 21, Jesus recorded his praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer for oneness was because that oneness would be reflected in a way that it would draw outside people to the Father. Paul makes it a cornerstone of his teaching on the church in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit In the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then in Philippians, the second chapter, in the first two verses, Paul also said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. But the church at Corinth was not displaying that oneness, as we've seen, to the world. Instead, they were fighting as factions, proclaiming loyalty to certain people rather than to Christ, and obviously they were involved in lots of legal squabbles, bringing suits against one another, apparently in civil courts, which was not clearly showing the unity that Jesus wished and Paul had proclaimed. So the first big idea that comes out of this passage, which is the one that I think most people see and uh, remember about this, is that as a Christian community, we should engage mature people in the church to help settle our disputes, not go through the civil court process. Sadly, that seems to me to be the only point that is usually taken from this passage. But I think there's a bigger point, and that's Paul's second thought, which it seems to me almost reads like it comes out of exasperation. In verse 7 and 8, he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You yourselves are wrong and you defraud others, even your own brothers. It reminds me when I first came to New Hope. Russ Decker and I had served uh, for a long time as elders at Grace, had traveled together Uh, in the missions field, and Russ called and asked me if I could help the elders move more in the direction of unity. As an outsider, it was really easy for me to see that there seemed to be this obsession at the time over what Jason had done that week in his sermon to offend somebody. It almost seemed to be the biggest takeaway From every week, there just was this nasty spirit that the community was breaking into factions over this. I'd hear exchanges after church on Sunday, and it was always a discussion at elder meetings. And so as we turned to God and prayed for unity and sought to change the culture of the elders from a place where people competed to advocate for the wisdom and logic of their own ideas, to a community that submitted to Christ and sought to hear what God was saying, some people decided that this was not the community for them, and they left. Um, No one was ever asked to leave, but some people were led to to leave. And God brought other people into leadership And eventually, this obsession about being offended dissipated. Now, that's certainly not to say that it never happens anymore, or, in fact, uh, uh, that Jason, I, I should say, in fact, Jason goes out of his way to give warnings about upcoming teachings. In fact, he's given a warning that over the next six or seven weeks, things are going to be PG-13. I can almost guarantee at some point in those six weeks, there is somebody who's going to be offended by something. But as a community, I don't see New Hope as being obsessed with it. So I think Paul is addressing that kind of de- devices divisiveness that existed in the church at Corinth, that every slight that, obs- uh, that offended somebody, in this case, led to a legal squabble. There's such an ugly spirit of disunity among, uh, about that. As Paul said, the fact that you're even in a lawsuit, you've already lost. It's out of exasperation that he says, what's the big deal? If you get wronged or you get defrauded, so what? It seems like a repost of Jesus' teaching about the log in our own eye as opposed to the splinter that we see in our neighbor or his teaching about letting him who was without sin throw the first stone. This reminds me of 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is talking about the character of elders. One of the characteristics of an elder is being gentle. Now, we think of the word gentle as meaning mild-mannered, not rough, not pugnacious. But in my early Christian journey, I heard a sermon by Walt Russell, one of the two founding pastors of Grace Fellowship. And he explained that this word gentle in the Greek has a meaning that goes beyond just our English word gentle. It means more than just the opposite of pugnacious. It also means someone who is willing to forego his right in the interest of others. In Alexander Strock's book on eldership, he writes... The gentleman stands in vivid contrast to the pugnacious man. A gentleman exhibits a willingness to yield and patiently make allowances for the weakness and ignorance of the fallen, fallen human condition. One who is gentle refuses to retaliate in kind for wrongs done by others and does not insist upon the letter, letter of the law for his personal rights. Uh, Several months ago, Darcy did a message uh, uh, that I call her Puffin message. Uh, And in it, she referred to a situation that she said she wanted to fix, but just couldn't. Well, that situation had to do with me. And it started out with a loan that I had made years ago to a Christian businessman in Florida. Uh, After a while, he stopped paying me back. And for several years, he and I would talk about it periodically. He was faithful in updating me on his business, how it was going, and why he wasn't in a position to start repaying me. After some time passed, I stopped hearing from him and, quite frankly, put it out of my mind. I I never considered suing him for the money. A couple of years ago, I got hit with an unexpected liability on a project in which I was merely a financial investor. But when the project failed, the bank came to me to cover the deficiency. and It was a pretty large sum of money, and I had no visible way to pay the bank other than liquidating retirement savings that at my age at the time was going to be pretty difficult to recover from. And it left me feeling very hopeless. But one day in the midst of that, I got a phone call from the guy in Florida. He reached out to me I had not heard from him in years and he told me that he was finally in a position with his business that he could begin paying me back. In fact, he proposed to make a sizable down payment and then to make 10 monthly payments. The total of the down payment and the 10 monthly payments he proposed was almost exactly the amount that I had to pay the bank. He had no idea of my predicament, and quite frankly, I never told him about it. But God used him to provide for me at a time when I had a need and felt hopeless. I've got a lot of stories like that during my business life. Times where God came out of nowhere to provide for me when I could not see a logical solution. The first message I ever preached was 32 years ago at Grace Fellowship. I had been a Christian for only three years, and I really had no idea what I was talking about. In fact, it was a message on Matthew 6, 25 through 32. And I picked that passage just because I loved a song um, that gets sung, uh, at the time we used to sing at Grace, that came from that passage, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God all and all of his righteousness. Um, it was a 55-minute long, boring, that, that was kind of the standard at Grace at that point. You preach for about an hour. Uh, and I spent an hour going through Matthew 6, 25 through 32. But since then, there's just been these seminal moments in my life where God has provided, where I had no idea where to return. I wish I could tell you that I no longer get anxious, but sadly, I do. Nevertheless, I think Paul's big point here is not just stop suing one another in civil courts. It's a bigger point that God will be faithful. He will provide, and we can rely on that. And as Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, we can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You don't always have to react when you've been wronged, and you don't have to enforce your legal right. God has your back. He will provide. We don't need to be anxious. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our study in this book of Corinthians... Help us, Lord, to desire to be one in community, one in love, one in spirit. Teach us, Lord, that we don't need to be anxious for anything that you supply. As Jesus taught, how well you dress and feed the birds and the flowers of the field, how much more will you take care of our needs? Lord, teach us that. Make us people who are willing to endure slights when we are wronged, um, to live together in healthy relationships where we can talk about being offended, but not in a way that leads to divisiveness. Lord, make us one so that the world may know that the Father has come to be among us.